it wasn't too long after I was born that they realized my right leg was shorter than my left. And that seemed to have a, an impeding problem for me as I was growing up, but I still played athletics. And uh, I guess I messed myself up because I always walked with a limp. And then when I tore the knee up playing basketball in college, I limped into the hospital and had surgery. Then I limped out of the hospital, and I limped for many more years, and at age 60, I had another partial put into the knee, and I limped after that. And then last January, I had a full replacement of that same knee, and I'm still limping. You know, I've come to a conclusion. I'm probably going to limp the rest of my life, to some extent. It doesn't bother me. I'm more concerned about my spiritual limp. You know, last week I told you that at a certain age I had a spiritual heart attack. I had that time when my heart was broken by God and then he put the pieces back together because he graced me. He loved me. And ever since then, forget about the physical limp, I've been trying to overcome the spiritual limp. I want to have the victory in my walk with Christ. But things come against us. Sometimes they're from the outside. Sometimes it's sickness. Sometimes it's even brought on by me, by my own terrible decisions. But I know this, that because of God's grace, I can have victory. So I can walk with this victorious limp through life. Three weeks ago, Alan brought us this definition of Grace, that we knew it was God's favor, undeserved by us, coming to us, unattached from anything else. And then he talked the second week about that target that God's going after the sinner. He's going after you and me to give us grace, just grace. That's all he wants to give us. But it's got so much that comes with it, it's unbelievable. And last week we talked about how you really don't have to add anything to that. God takes care of all of it. And this week, we're going to turn just a little bit to finish our thoughts on grace by saying this, that even though sometimes in life seem insurmountable, grace will see you through. Just grace. That's all you need. The Apostle Paul was a very special apostle. He came to Christ in a different way from the rest of these men who followed Jesus for three and a half years. Paul was walking on a road, persecuting those who said that they loved Jesus, and suddenly God appears to him and says, why are you doing this? And he said, who is this? He said, it's me, the Lord, the one you think is dead, I'm alive. And he shut his eyes, and over that next three-day period, Paul had to wrestle in his own heart, blinded to the reality of what he had been doing, he now had his eyes opened and he could see. And so he decided that serving the Lord was the call that was upon him because that's what God gave him. But in the course of that, at some point in time, God chose to bring Paul up to heaven. Now, Paul will never say it was him, but when we read this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you're going to recognize that he's apologizing because he can't tell you it's him. So he's being really neat about the way he approaches this. But it's him. And he says, I went to the third heaven. Let's read it. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 9. 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, if there's a third heaven, there has to be a first and a second, right? And the first heaven, we believe, is the heavens that declare the glory of God. When you look out this morning as I walked out early, and I saw the stars in the sky, and, and it was glorifying God because I knew he hung them, he named them. He knows right where they are right now. That's a comforting feeling to me. I'm not walking in the unknown. I'm walking in the known. That's just the first heaven. The third heaven apparently is that place of paradise where all those who have gone ahead of us are, are in their rest waiting for the redemption of the world. And that's where Paul was taken. That second heaven, most believe, is the place from which evil does its work and comes to get us and do things with us or at least try, and God's grace overwhelms that, so we win. So Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in body or out of body, I don't know. God knows. And I know this. This man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows. He repeats it twice because he wants to make sure that he's not boasting. Was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast... I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Because of these surpassingly great revelations, you see, God showed him things that you and I haven't seen. He said things that you and I have never heard. So there's something unbelievable about where we're headed. And God said, Paul, you can't talk about this. And I'm sure Paul said, that's fine, Lord, I won't. But God, God knew, yes, you will. You will because it's so awesome. How can you not tell it? So I'm going to have to help you out here, Paul. It doesn't sound like the kind of help I want, but here's what he did. He said, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. Here's what happened to Paul. Paul's at some time early in his ministry, before he really gets started on all his journeys and everything, he gets taken to heaven, he sees these things, he comes back, he feels like, okay, that's amazing. Uh, I can't really wait to go there. At one point in his journeys, he says, I would rather be there than here, but for your sakes, I'll stay here. See, he knew where he was headed, what it was going to be. But then all of a sudden, Satan comes. He's allowed to come. Actually, he is sent by God to do this. Sounds a little like Job. So here he comes, and he puts a thorn in his flesh. What does that mean? You ever had a thorn? I remember once on a beach in Florida running along the sand dunes, and I stepped on one of those little prickly thorns, and it went up into my, my foot, and I hobbled home. There I was limping again, and... 
I got somebody with tweezers to pull it out and then to bandage it, and it felt a little bit better, but I had to walk softly on it for several days until it lightened up. No infection. Everything was great. That's a thorn. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's using language from his own life. He's a tent maker. Here's what he says. There was a tent stake given unto me. The word he actually uses is stake, not thorn. But we wouldn't understand that, would we? But he's talking about something big, something heavy, something powerful has come into my life and come against me. What am I going to do about it? Well, he needs this abiding vision of God in his life. And so he's driven to prayer. That's where you go first. There will be those situations that come into our lives. Situations that we had nothing to do with, but they just approach us and they engage us. They cause us to suffer. It could be sickness. It could be interpersonal relationships outside of ourselves. I think that's why God never told us what this burden is that he put upon Paul. Paul never mentions it again after this passage. I think I know why. I think he did not identify it so that you and I could put in its place anything we wanted to say. That this is the thorn in my flesh, and you add your own content. Knowing this, that this thorn in your flesh is something that God allowed for a purpose. What's the purpose? To continue to form you, to shape you, into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, why do I have to suffer to do that? Because Christ suffered. Paul writes in Philippians, it's appointed unto us not only to believe on him, but to suffer on his behalf. You see, we are called to forms of suffering. Why? So that we'll be drawn into a relationship with God, driven by this suffering to seek him more often so that we may become more like Jesus Christ because that's the effect of grace. Grace is designed to conform us to his image. And that's what we need. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119.71, It was good for me to be afflicted, so that I might learn your decrees. Said, Don't fight against affliction when it comes. Now certainly you have the right to pray that it be taken away. Paul prayed three times. Why three? Some kind of magic number? No. I think he was patterning it after Jesus who prayed three times in the garden that this cup of wrath would be taken from him. Was it taken? No, it wasn't. Because Jesus was willing to depend upon the grace of the Father in the most unnerving of situations where he would take all the sin of the world upon himself and he would pay the price to reconcile you and me to the Father. If he was willing to do that and God has graced us with our salvation by grace through faith, if he's done that, would we and should we not be willing to suffer on his behalf so that we can be recipients of more grace to help us through that time. See, that's the beauty of God. He never gives you more than you can handle. He always gives you a means to get through it. That's grace. 
working hard to get you there. Now, naturally, you and I want to avoid pain. But sometimes we bring it upon ourselves, don't we? Some of the suffering that's in your life is because of a bad decision you made. I've been there. And I keep wondering, well, why can't I get out of it? Well, you got into it. And if I'm the problem, I'm probably not the solution. So I ask God, God, would you deliver me out of this? God said, if you come to me with the right attitude, I'll work with you. He never promises to deliver us out of. He promises to deliver us through. One of the great examples of that is Simon Peter. Remember, he made the beautiful confession of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. You are the Christ, the Son of God, the living God, you know. And, and then later he said, and I'll never leave you, Jesus. I'll go to Jerusalem. I'll die with you. And Jesus turns to him and says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter, no, I would never do that. And what happens? Three times. In the course of that evening after the arrest of Christ, he denies him. And it overwhelms him. He is driven to the presence of God. Now, maybe you've never had to go to the lengths he went to to be restored, but watch this video with me and feel his pain. man in the presence of God. I think that was probably Paul too, where Paul fell on his knees, bowed his heart, and said, Lord, please, the pain that I'm in is horrific. I need that pain to be taken away from me. But here's the second thing that Paul did. He, he learned that he needed to come to God in prayer, but he also learned this. It's not going away. That's hard to handle, isn't it? His prayer wasn't answered the way he wanted it. I'm sure that he went there believing that God could take it away, and he could have. But he had to accept the fact that there's certain times in life, according to God's perfect plan, that he is going to allow things to happen in your life in order to pour more grace into you, in order to show his strength through you, in order to help you become more like Christ. He's going to do that because he loves you so much. 
And I know we're thinking, oh, isn't there another way, Lord? Well, there are two ways to relieve a burden. You know, you either lighten the load or you strengthen the shoulder. And God has decided not to lighten the load, but to strengthen our shoulders. That we might walk in him the way we should walk. Listen to what someone once said. They said this, to take away the burden need not be the external removal of the sorrow but the infusing of power to sustain it. So in the midst of your sorrow, even though you've asked for it to be taken away and it hasn't gone, then turn your thinking to say, okay, God, that I'm going to accept the fact that you're going to give me the grace I need to deal with the power, to deal with the issue that's coming against me. And God will do that because he's made that promise. My grace is sufficient for you. On my way down to Indianapolis this weekend for my youngest granddaughter's seventh birthday, I was channel surfing on my radio, and I came across a Christian radio station out of Chicago, and they were announcing that this gentleman was going to preach, and I'd never heard of him before, but I thought, okay, I can, I can see this is... Dr. James Ford, Jr. from Christ Bible Church in Chicago. Fine, that sounds great. So I'm all ready and I'm driving and he comes on and he says, my text for today is what we've been speaking on for the last four weeks and it is 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 9. I'm going, say what? That's my passage. You're going to preach my passage? Now I have to listen to it. Not to see if you got it right, but to see if I got it wrong. You know, I got to know. What are you going to say? Now, I love this guy. Never heard of him before, but I want to listen to him again. Because here's what he did with the passage. He said, putting words together in an incredibly fun way, he said, you see, Paul took his disability, and he didn't make it a liability, but he trusted in God's possibility. Now, that'll preach. So that should have been my three points for today. But what he's saying is true. It's that Paul came to the realization that, okay, I've got this. It's not going away. So I'm going to change my thinking, and I'm not going to let it become a liability that will keep me from going to the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus. Instead, I'm going to depend upon the possibility that God will fill me with enough grace that I can grace everybody I come across. The burden wasn't a surprise to God. It's not as though when he first heard Paul's prayer, he went, really? What happened? It was part of the design of God. A design to take Paul and through Paul do the miraculous so that the world would see it. He fashioned that in Christ. Do you remember the time that Christ was on the plane there and there were 5,000 people seated, not including women and children? And what does he say when the disciples say to him, look, they need to be able to go and get something to eat now. This is Jesus' reply in Matthew. He says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I don't know that I would have liked being a disciple. It's like, you told us to come without any money or anything. Now you want us to feed them. We don't have anything to feed them with. The only thing here is this little kid here has got a couple of fish and some bread. Now, in my mind, here's what I see happening. doesn't say so in Scripture. I'm just kind of making up my own story here. 
but I want you to think of it with me. Here's Jesus. He says, well, bring that food to me, son. And the boy comes up and he takes it. It's probably in a little basket and he's holding it and he tells the guys, now go out and find some other moms who have baskets and bring them up here and we're going to distribute the fish. And he reaches in, puts some bread on there and some fish on there. That's one. He reaches over here and puts a fish and some bread. That's two, three, four, five. He goes all the way up, 12 baskets full, sends out the disciples and they go out and they feed everybody that's out there and they collect 12, 12 baskets full of food to bring back. This is amazing. Here's what happened. Human logic said there's not enough to feed the people. An omnipotent God said, bring the bread and fish to me. Faith said, I'll pray and I'll give it to the crowd. And experience said, and I'll gather more after we're done. When God puts an issue in your life and you go to him in prayer, your prayer is not, why is this happening, Lord? Because you may never receive an answer. Your prayer is, Lord, what is it you want me to do with this? Will you take it away or not? And when you hear, I'm not taking it away, then it's time for you to adapt your own thinking to understand that what's coming into you now is enough of God's grace to help you. Here's it. Grace used always increases. Grace poured out brings more grace in. God didn't give you his grace just to save you. He gave you his grace to change you, to conform you, so that you would go out and be a light in the world, that you would go out and people would see Christ in you, their hope of glory, that you'd go out and you would grace other people. Because what they need is just grace. They need God's grace. They need to know how good our God is. Faith does that. Paul, I believe another reflection on his visit to heaven says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Something he saw up there just totally outweighed whatever suffering we must have here. So it's time for us to start thinking differently. Accept the situation you find yourself in. Continue to pray. There's nothing wrong with that. Asking God to deliver you. If he chooses to, praise God. If he chooses not to, praise God. But he will give you the grace you need, and then you need to keep moving. You know, stop. From there, Paul went out into these journeys. Paul went out and did all the things that God had called him to do. Because he understood when God said, my grace is sufficient, he understood the word sufficient. Sufficient meant when I poured grace into you, it started something that won't stop until you come home to me. It's an ongoing effect. It continues. Grace is not a one-time thing. It's not by grace you were saved through faith, and now you don't need those anymore. No, it's by grace through faith, and both of those continue. They're gifts of God to you. They both continue to grow. Your faith grows, your grace grows. How does grace grow? By getting rid of it. Grace never leaves. 
You're filled with the Holy Spirit, who is his grace. You're filled up in him. Paul wasn't simply accepting the inevitable. He was rejoicing that he knew he would have the grace God needed to give him to accomplish what God wanted him to do. He was graced by God. When I went back and reread the passage, I thought, you know, he could have said this, that to keep me from telling other people about what I've experienced, to keep me from being conceited, God graced me with a messenger from Satan. Oh, that changes things, doesn't it? It was the grace of God that allowed Satan to do this. Why? Because he knew it would create in Paul a whole different attitude toward what it meant to serve God. God has graced you, not simply with salvation. He has graced you to deal with life. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9, Paul says this. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why all the knots? Because God's grace has untied them. He went through all of these things, and he said, but they didn't, they didn't have their way. They didn't stop me from doing what I needed to do, nor those who were with me. These things that God has allowed to come into our lives are to help us become more like Christ. So grab that. Begin to understand what God's calling you to do. And you can do it by his grace. Grace poured out to you is supposed to be poured out to others. This woman was born in 1940. She was a four-and-a-half-month baby, born prematurely, already off to a bad start, let alone the fact that she was the 20th child of 22 in this Christian home. That's a large family. Early in her years, prior to eight years old, she had scarlet fever. She had double pneumonia. She had polio. The doctor said, you're not going to walk again. She tells the story. She says, my doctor told me I'd never walk again, but my mother told me I would. She said, girl, never let somebody else put limits on you about God. See, no matter what your difficulty is, God has not been limited in how he can deal with it. They put a brace on her leg. She walked with that till she was nine years old. But her belief in God was so strong, she said, you know, I'm going to try something. She took it off, and she entered with the track team at her school a race. She came in last. And the second time she did it, she came in last. And the third time she did it, she came in next to last. And she said, all right. When she was 16 years old, she qualified for the Melbourne Olympics. She won a bronze in the 100-meter dash. 1960, she made history. In the Olympics in Rome, she ran the 100-meter dash, set a new world record, and got a gold. She ran the 200-meter dash, set a new world record, and got a gold. 
She ran the 4 by 400 set a new world record, and got a gold. First woman ever to walk away from the Olympic with three medals. 1980, they inducted her into the Olympic Hall of Fame, and in 2004, a commemorative stamp of the United States was made in the name of Wilma Rudolph, who started out with incredible disabilities, but whose mother taught her not to let them be liabilities. And she took it all the way as far as she could to the glory of God. I don't know what your disabilities are. I know what mine are. And I'm learning to accept them in God so that he can pour his grace into me so I can pour it out. Now, how do you pour it out? It loops back to the first point in prayer. You get into prayer with God, you get into God's presence, and God will pour through you that which he wants to go out. A few weeks ago, I came across an incredibly interesting ad. It was about Heinz ketchup. This is not a promo for Heinz ketchup, okay? But how many of you have ever taken a ketchup bottle and you've had to do this with it? You know, to try to get the ketchup out. And I know your younger ones, you've got the squeeze bottles. But hey, they're just as bad, aren't they? Because when it's not coming out, you still have to shake it. And then you do it and you get this all over everywhere. Well, someone in the Heinz organization is really creative and brilliant. And they said, honestly, if you take the Heinz bottle and you hold it at one particular angle, the ketchup will flow perfectly. So how do we teach people what that angle should be? They came up with an idea. The label that is on the bottle says Heinz. If you turn that label so that it is almost horizontal, but it's kind of at an angle, and then you turn the bottle until the label is perpendicular, you have now reached the perfect pour. They're testing it in Toronto. Watch this. Isn't that neat? I hope it sells well and it doesn't confuse people. And they start writing Heinz, you know, hey, your, your label's on crooked. <laughs> you know what? You and I have been labeled. We've been labeled by God. He's imprinted in us by his Holy Spirit who we are. Now, in my life, I know that I need to get into his presence more and I need to bow myself before him, but I need to find that perfect angle. And here's what I'm recognizing. I'm saying, okay, God, if you'll sit like this in me, then when I bend and I have this perfect perpendicular relationship with you, I should be bowed at the right level that you can pour grace into me and I can pour it out to others. That's what we're called to do. So we want you to do that. To take that grace that we've defined, that grace that targeted us, that grace that needs nothing added to it, and go pour it out because his grace is sufficient for you. Now, if you stand, we're going to do something together here. It's not going to hurt, I promise. It'll only last a couple of seconds. 
I'm going to ask all of you, whether it's just a bowing of the head or a bowing of the body, to bow in his presence that we might be refreshed by his grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we bow before you. We seek an anointing of your grace for salvation if it's needed, but for the strength and the power to live this life according to your will. Help us, Jesus. We need your help. We cry out like Peter did. You are our Lord and our God. So we humble ourselves in your presence. And we say, use us, Lord, to be vehicles of grace in this community. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.